Welcome to the Grace Hill Podcast, a weekly podcast of our Sunday messages driven by our pastor. Grace Hill exists to bring God's biblical truth to your everyday life. As we begin this week's message, we invite you to open your Bibles and capture what God has in store for you today. So before we jump into our text for today, we have to do a little bit of backing up, so to speak, so that we can know where James is coming from. So today, we don't have like a traditional intro where I like I ask some random questions and then tell a funny story, right? So today, we actually are going to jump back into chapter three at the end of the chapter, not what we covered last week, but jumping to the end of chapter three, uh, starting in verse 13, because we have to understand where James came from before we jump into where James is going today. Is that fair? You understand? that. Okay. So this is not our actual text. So this is like the pre-sermon for the sermon. Okay. So just roll with me and just be good with it, please. Thank you. All right. It's good. So starting in verse 13, it says, who is wise and understanding among you? Let them show it by their good life, by deeds done in the humility that comes from wisdom. But if you harbor bitter envy and selfish ambition in your hearts, do not boast about it or deny the truth. Such wisdom does not come down from heaven, but is earthly, unspiritual, demonic. For where you have envy and selfish ambition, there you find disorder and and every evil practice. But the wisdom that comes from heaven is first of all pure, then peace-loving, considerate, submissive, full of mercy and good fruit, impartial and sincere, peacemakers who sow in peace, reap a harvest of righteousness. So to lay the groundwork real fast, first and foremost, we have to understand and know this so that we can understand this text, that God is for God. First and foremost, primarily, God is for himself. He is for his glory, which which is good for us, right? That is a good thing. He is concerned for us, right? He's concerned for you. He cares for you. But ultimately, his focus is on his glory, okay? So hear me, follow me, and then we'll get to this little text. The second thing is, because God is for God, He has designed things to work in a specific way, right? So he has ordained a certain truth as it is, right? So truth is not relative. Understand that truth is not relative. There is a a, a truth that can be known and practiced and submitted to. We don't get to decide what is true, right? So he's talking about heavenly wisdom versus earthly wisdom. And so in that, we, we don't have the, the ability to choose or decide what is truth. We, we get the choice to walk in truth, right? And so here we have this. And so false wisdom basically categorically rejects the fact that God is for God and believes that God exists for me. False wisdom says that God exists to bring me another pillow when I get uncomfortable, right? Have you met those people like, well, God, why didn't you give me this? Why don't I have that? Why is that person, right? So that's this, this false wisdom says that God's purpose and his intentions, if there is a God, is to bless me when I need it and make me more comfortable, right? So that is this, this false wisdom. So with that, there's no truth to be had except what I perceive to be truth or what I deem to be truth. So if the Bible disagrees with my truth, then I can just mark it with a little asterisk next to that verse. And at the bottom, it'll say, this does not apply to me, right? That is how it works because that is now false wisdom. The Bible tells us that false wisdom, James says this, is, is, is 
basically the heart of, of that false wisdom is the here and now, focused on today and today only. It's the whole idea of let's eat, drink, and be merry for tomorrow we die, right? That is false wisdom. It's going, well, I'm going to live for the moment. I'm going to live for now because whatever happens beyond this moment doesn't matter because it is about me and in this particular moment. So this is that false wisdom so, so I'll spend my money as if there's no eternity. I'll live my life as if there's no eternity. I, I will relate to people as if there's no eternity, right? Because this is that false wisdom. And so who cares about anyone else? And I'm going quickly through this because I want to get to our, our real text today. This idea is the death of everything human beings have called virtue for all time. Because this is now, it's all about me. It's all about my happiness is the utmost, uh, you know, of the utmost importance. Uh, my, my well-being is all that I'm concerned with. And so, so if there is a God, his job is to concern himself with me. Why would I sacrifice anything for you? Why would I give for, for what you want? Why did this? So this is that false wisdom. So with that, then there's no category for suffering because who cares about other people and where they are? Who cares about their well-being? And so if relationships are going awry, well, it doesn't matter to me as long as I come out ahead, right? And, and so, so who cares about anyone else? Here's what happens in this realm of thinking and in this mindset. It is marked by bitterness and jealousy. Because if you walk in this idea that God exists for me and for me only, we cannot then find happiness or joy when others are blessed because we find that we are not blessed in the same way, right? So when we don't receive what they receive, we're now jealous and bitter towards them. So you understand? So, so to live in this mindset that says everything exists to please me, everything is about me and this, this selfish mindset, it ultimately ends with bitterness and jealousy because if everybody's purpose then is to serve you and they're not serving you or giving you what you want or hoping that you should receive, all of a sudden you become embittered by this perceived idea that everything is for you, right? So this is that false wisdom that says, I can do what I want, when I want, how I want, and people should bless me and do for me. And so when others get blessed, it is an offense to you. And you go, well, I didn't like that they got that. Well, why do they get the new car? Why do they have a bigger house? Why is their bank account more full than mine? You know, and, it's, and you become offended by the blessings that others receive rather than celebrating and joy with them. So here's the deal. Let's get real for just a quick moment. We as people are perverted people. We as people are, are, are horrible human beings. If we felt that we could get away with anything, if there was no uh, consequences in the here and now, if there was no consequences in eternity, we would do some of the most depraved things. Am I right? Because there is no consequence. There's nothing that, that is, that is to, to balance that. There is no authority to be submitted to. That's what happens when you walk in, in, in false wisdom. You begin to, to not weigh the cost of things and you only focus on the here and now. That's false wisdom. The Bible says it not only ends with, with internal conflict, but it also ends with eternal damnation. And you may be here today and you think, okay, do you truly believe that, that archaic idea of, of eternal damnation? I believe so strongly in the holiness of God that there couldn't be any other way and that the punishment fits the crime. But James then contrasts false wisdom. Here's the good news. <laughs> Trust me, this is good news, right? And we're like, man, this guy is like straight for the throat today. I'm just, it's just James. It's not, you know, we're just rolling with it. There is good news. James then contrasts false wisdom with true wisdom. 
Truism embraces that God is for God and it fully surrenders to the will of God. How is God primarily for God? By building joy in our souls for him. Like a happy marriage that would encourage confidence in the institute around it. Those who walk in true wisdom have eternity in mind. They aren't as concerned with the day to day. They are focused on eternal impact or on kingdom and our kingdom focus. Or the apostle Paul said, his current suffering isn't worthy of being compared to his future glory. I did a funeral yesterday uh, for B.B. Miller's mother. And many of y'all know, know uh, B.B. or Bibiana. But her mother suffered for 20 years with Alzheimer's. And that's a struggle. But here's what we know is that she knew the Lord. And so she is now in glory. And, and so that moment she wakes up in heaven, guess what? Every ounce of suffering, every, every moment of struggle with Alzheimer's, all of it is forgotten. It immediately vanishes. So Paul says, my present suffering, it doesn't, doesn't compare to the glory. Uh, when, I, when, when, I, when I enter into this future glory, all of that will wash away. All of that will vanish. And so he, he has this kingdom mindset, this eternal mindset. So, so when you see that these people that are suffering, when they know the Lord, they enter into heaven, they walk into the glory of the throne room of God and they wake up there. All of a sudden, every ounce of that, every moment of that, everything is gone, it vanishes because all you can do is be overwhelmed by the glory of God. I've heard it said that the first moment of glory will make years of suffering vanish. So we don't live in the abandonment of this world, right? We can't just be completely disconnected and be like, well, no, I'm, I'm of a heavenly mindset. I forget about this. And then you don't pay bills and you go, no, I'm worried. about." No. There are things we have to do, right? We are a part of this world and we'd be foolish. Have you ever heard of the, 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 the statement that they're so heavenly minded, they're no earthly good, right? You know, so, so we can't abandon our responsibilities on earth. We can't disconnect from that, but we walk in heavenly wisdom and not in the mindset of everything exists for me and God is my wishing well, but we live in the mindset that says God is ultimately for God and his glory. And as such, I will surrender and submit to the will of God because in that the fullness of joy begins to build inside of me and is poured out. The fullness of life is found when I lay it down. That's one of the great twists in kingdom economics, isn't it? that the, the way to gain life is to submit and to surrender and to lay it down at the feet of Jesus. He said, because I want full life, I'm gonna give it to you. So just real quick, how do we grow in wisdom? One is the word of God. So how do we grow? So through the word of God, we don't read the Bible like a newspaper. Uh, we read the scriptures to let them read us. And that's a shift in a, in, in, in a thought process. Like, okay, I'm not just gonna read it like, oh, what were the facts of the day? What was happening? No, 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 no. We read the scriptures, read the word of God so that in turn we go, okay, what about me is it reading? What do I need to tweak? What do I need to change? And understanding that the Bible is not the point. The point of the Bible is to lead us closer to Jesus, right? Two would be the community of believers. You walk in true wisdom. If you wanna walk in true wisdom, surround yourself by people who walk in true wisdom. Surround yourself by people who walk in true wisdom. And the last, then we have leaders. So meaning that people who have followed Christ longer, who have drawn closer, they've gone through difficulty longer that, that, that we can lean on, right? So this is how we grow in the wisdom. The word of God through a community of believers, being a part of the church and then seeking out that mentoring relationship, right? So we grow in the wisdom that way. So all of that, 
to get us to where we're going today. So James doesn't walk away from this idea. He doesn't just say, all right, well, that was the end of that. Let's hang that up and move on, right? It, it's not like just this, like start a new statement. No, no, no. So you have to understand in the way the scriptures were originally written, they were just letters. And so they're not writing numbers and chapters and all this kind of stuff. That was something we did for reference later to be able to easily find uh, what was said in the statements that were written, right? And so James has this continual thought. And so we're going to pick up now with the text where we're going to be today in James chapter four, verses one through 10. So starting in verse one. And if you have your Bibles, I would encourage you to open your Bible this morning and to find it, to, to flip through it, to know where it is. It's good. I, I, when I'm home, I have an actual Bible that I read. It's the craziest thing in the world. I'm a little old school in that regard. I know it's not a, just a digital format. And so I have an actual Bible that I open and flip. I just like it. I underline and I highlight and, and yeah, that's my encouragement to you to do so. So bring your Bible. So here we go. James chapter four, verse one, it says, what causes fights and quarrels among you? Don't they come from your desires that battle within you? You desire, but do not have, so you kill. You covet, but you cannot get what you want, so you quarrel and fight. You do not have because you do not ask God. When you ask, you do not receive because you ask with wrong motives that you may spend what you get on your pleasures. And then James does what he does best and he gets hard and, and, and strong to the point here. You adulterous people, don't you know that friendship with the world means enmity against God, meaning hostility, hostility towards God. I'll say this time out for just a quick moment. I'll say this. There are some people in this world that you can feel big and bold with and, and flex at. God is not one of them. So just throwing that out there, like you may go, I could take that guy. God is not on that list. I'm just, okay, so here we go. Therefore, anyone who chooses to be a friend of the world becomes an enemy of God. Or do you think scripture says without reason that he jealously longs for the spirit he has caused to dwell in us, but he gives us more grace. One of the greatest sentences you can read in the Bible right there. Thank God for that statement, but he gives us more grace. That is why scripture says, God opposes the proud, but shows favor to the humble. Submit yourselves then to God. Resist the devil and he will flee from you. Come near to God and he will come near to you. Wash your hands, you sinners, and purify your hearts, you double-minded. Grieve, mourn, and wail. Change your laughter to mourning and your joy to gloom. Humble yourselves before the Lord and he will lift you up. Let me pray. Father, today, anoint my lips, anoint my words to speak your word. Let us, be, let us be in tune with what you're speaking and what you're saying. God, let us be aware of what you wanna speak to us today. We thank you for it. We give you glory and honor in Jesus' name. Amen. So we're gonna start there in verse one. And what we see is we have people that are quarreling. This is kind of an ongoing theme in the book of James. Clearly the people bickered and went back and forth and they're angry and they are fighting constantly. They're constantly fighting with one another here in the book of James. And so James is going, enough is enough. And that's why he's writing this letter. So now he is like pinpointing and attacking the issue. He is saying, okay, we're going to fix this. And this is where it begins. And this is how it starts. So, so the conflict is birthed out of these personally internal issues. He says, you, you, you quarrel and you fight because of the battle within you. 
So sometimes we have quarrels and we have fights in our lives, right? That, that are caused by others doing things to us, right? So they're outward influences and, and you go, man, this is crazy. Just uh, the other day, maybe two days ago, down on uh, Centerville and Northwest Highway, there was a man that was shot and killed because of a road rage incident, which I think, goodness gracious, if you feel somebody's life is worth taking because they cut you off, you have issues that are deeper than deep, right? So, but what we find is that he was enraged because of something done to him, right? And so he, he addressed that and he fought that, right? This isn't even what's happening here. These people are fighting and angry and, and mad at each other. He says, you don't get what you want, so you kill, right? This is, this is where they are. And it's all because of internal issues, right? It's the same thing we see with this, this guy that, that was down the road at Centerville and Northwest Highway. He, there's an internal issue. There's something going on. And so he's like, I'm mad at you because I didn't get what I wanted. And then now he turns and he kills this man, right? So this is what we're seeing in the book of James. This is some serious stuff that James is dealing with. He's going, wow, this is beyond just a little bit. Well, I'm not happy with him because he took my seat. Right? This is far greater. He's going, so you bicker and you quarrel because of internal issues. You don't get what you want, so you kill. So James is coming after him and he's saying, this is, this is not how it should be. So this is selfish people with problems in their hearts. So people grow in one of two ways. Uh, and some people realize the blessings that are given to us by God. And the, and the generosity that he has bestowed upon us. So you don't have to understand, we're not owed health. We're not owed great marriages. We're not owed a job. We're not owed, the reality is none of those things that we, we get, we're not owed those things. And we have to understand and recognize and remember that those are blessings of God. Those are gifts from God. What we have is because of the grace of God and that we get to receive those things. And so what happens is the people that understand that, that recognize that, that begins to then stir up gladness in their hearts, which then turns to gratitude towards God, which then turns into praise. And in our praise, it then stirs that back up again so that then we feel and we experience this gladness again and it returns into gratitude, which turns it and becomes just this overwhelming joy because we recognize and we see the blessings that God has given, right? And we recognize that, that what we have is because of the goodness of God. Then you have the other way that people grow and that is in contempt. They don't see what they have as a blessing from God. They see it as being owed by God. And so they go, it's not a matter of receiving a blessing. It's, a, it's about time you gave me that, right? There's a difference in the understanding. And so, so they, they feel that they should have more and more. So when others receive blessing, this goes back to, like I said, in chapter three, understanding the worldly wisdom versus the heavenly wisdom. They, they, they find themselves frustrated or angry that others have when they don't or when they don't receive they feel they deserve more. Well, you know, why aren't they being blessed? Why, why is this all I have? What did I do wrong? I've been perfect. So they grow in contempt. And this contempt eventually grows and grows and is directed towards God. Because how dare God not give me what I deserve? Side note, you don't want what you deserve. Just throw that out there. I have seen uh, just these awesome, like perfect little Christians and, and, and kids, you know, they grow up in church and they're awesome. I, 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 was, I was one of those kids really kind of growing up and, and I, never, I never went to, I never cussed, right? I, wasn't, I did some, I'm not gonna lie. Let's not make this up, right? But you know those kids, right? That you go, man, they never said a cuss word. They, never, they didn't go to the parties. They didn't drink. They, they didn't listen to secular music. Instead, they listened to pretty lame Christian music all the time. That was kind of a knockoff of, 
the other stuff. And they're like, yeah, this sounds a lot like, no, it doesn't. Yeah. I mean, they're trying, right? And then they grow up and they've been these, these awesome, perfect little Christians. And then the moment something, sometimes the moment along the way, when God doesn't give them what they want or they think they deserve, all of a sudden they turn and they go, well, forget you, God. I've done this, 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 and this. You know, they go, well, my, my girlfriend broke up with me. It's over. God did it. It's his fault. Or they didn't get into the college that they wanted. And there's this frustration of, well, God didn't get me into this college. And they didn't want Jesus. They wanted his stuff, right? So there's this difference in understanding that you can grow in understanding of the blessings that you have from God, or you can grow in contempt and let it develop and become an angry towards God. And so what we see here in, 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 in chapter four is that these, these people are quarreling and fighting because of this internal conflict within themselves. They desire and don't have, so they kill, they covet and cannot get what they want. So they quarrel and fight. So just bringing this all into kind of understanding what we have here. We have these people that are frustrated and angry that they're not receiving from God what they think is rightfully theirs, right? And so rather than, than recognizing the blessings that they have, they then turn on other people who are receiving blessing and they go, I want what you have. Why don't I have what you have? And so then they, they are angry and they fight, they kill. And, and, and then they go and say, well, I'm gonna ask God for what I want, but they're not asking God for what they want out of the right motives and out of wanting to, to be used of God but they want to get from God to use it on their selfish desires and their personal pleasures. And so all it does is it leads to continual conflict and frustration. It is this ongoing cycle where it just builds and it builds and it builds and it builds. Just like we were saying that, that some grow in their recognition of, the glad, you know, of what God has given. So it's gladness and then, and then gratitude and praise and it begins to develop and build this joy in the same way on the other side, it builds in frustration and anger and contentment and, and going, I am so miserable because I do not have, I do not have, I do not have. And when we begin to feel that God is the one that should be giving to us, all of a sudden our anger and flips and is directed then towards him. And so verse four, James says this, he says, you adulterous people, don't you know that friendship with the world means enmity against God? Therefore, anyone who chooses to be a friend of the world becomes an enemy of God. This is some serious stuff. James is, James is not, you know, he's going, listen, I want you to recognize and understand that what you're doing is a big deal. What you're doing is truly a problem. The word adulterous here means being unfaithful to original beliefs being unfaithful to original beliefs. So he's saying these people, they had, they had accepted Christ and they are following and they're walking in the way of the word and, 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 and what is understood about God and Jesus and the Holy Spirit. And they're here and somewhere along the way, this, this, this contentment begin to grow and the selfish entitlement begin to set in and take root in their hearts. And all of a the sudden, they have now turned their back because they're not receiving from God what they rightfully are owed in their mindset, right? What they think is theirs, and, and James is saying, you adulterer, you have turned against God. He says, don't you know that friendship with the world means enmity against God? 
So when God didn't provide what they wanted, they turn to the world to get what they think is rightfully theirs. I've met these people where they say, forget God. This has happened to me, this has happened to me, that's happened to me. And and all of a sudden, their frustration then turns to hostility towards God. And they go, forget it, I don't want anything to do with it. To say, if God doesn't give me what I want, what what I deserve, I'm gonna take my friendship from him and give it to those who are most hostile towards him, is what James is saying they've done here. See, we don't understand friendship in this day and age. I heard, I heard a, a pastor talk about this just this past week. It was a really great understanding of friendship in this day and age. First of all, we have a few things stacked against us to developing great friendships in this day and age. One, we move way too often. Our families will go all over the place now. Back in, in first century church, right, during this time, your, your life was in this area, Right? You didn't move. You, you typically did the work of your father or your mother. You know, it's just kind of passed down generationally, generationally. You live next to the same families forever and ever and ever. So you have these deep, deep relationships with your, with your, your neighbors and, and your friends that are close to you. So you have very deep connection. The other thing that is against us now is social media, right? We have the internet. So anything we want to know about somebody, we can find by clicking over on Facebook or pulling up Instagram, or if you still use it, Twitter um, can, could show you some things about these people, right? Because all the information you want is, at the, is in your hand, right? You go, so I can know these people. So instead of developing deep relationships, we have really strong acquaintances. So we introduce people, those like, hey, this is my best, this is my good friend, Johnny. And they're like, hey, where's Johnny from? And you're like, well, Johnny, where are you from? Like, we don't know these things, right? So there's like surface level, you know, and entry level things in friendship don't exist as often in relationships any longer, right? So we have, we struggle with deep friendships in this day and age. And what we find is in the Bible that that friendship meant everything. Friendship was, was sought after, uh, Friendship was, uh, you know, something that, that meant an opportunity for deep intimacy with a person, not in a weird way, not in a, not in a sexual way, but in a sense of truly knowing someone. Even, even Jesus uh, had, had his three, right? We know about the 12, and, and, but we also have to remember that he had his, his three closest in Peter, James, and John, and that he, he was deep in relationship with these three, Right? because it was sought after. It was almost by invitation only, right? In the, in the depth of their relationship and their friendship. And, and so now, if we want that in this day and age, we have to fight for it. So what James is saying is saying, you have taken this friendship that you had and you have removed it from God. And you said, I'm gonna give it to these people over here who are the most hostile towards God. They basically said, forget it, God. If you're not gonna give me, if you're not gonna give me what what I deserve, then I'm gonna go over here where I can find it with these people who are against you completely. So what 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 James is saying is that when you decide to say that God, that I'm gonna take this relationship, I'm gonna take all this, when you do this, it is the greatest assault on the mercy and the beauty of God that we can do. Where God says, I'm here with, with all that you could ever possibly want and you're gonna take, my, take your friendship from me. Here's what's crazy. We've all been guilty of this at some point in time or another, right? Where we, where we say, forget it, I'm gonna turn, I'm gonna do this. You know, and we have those moments. We stumble, we fall, and, and, and we turn our backs on God. Here's what's crazy to me is God's response. Starting in verse five, he says, 
Or do you think scripture says without reason that he jealously longs for the spirit he has caused to dwell in us, but he gives us more grace? That is why scripture says God opposes the proud but shows favor to the humble. The jealousy of God is a confusing concept. It's a confusing concept. In fact, Oprah would cite the jealousy of God as her reason for not being a Christian. It's a true story. Uh, she, she has said that she was in a service and, and the pastor started talking about the jealousy of God and she completely missed it. I, I don't know what was going on, but she just, you know, she, she missed it and she misunderstood it. Her reasoning was that if God can be jealous of me, then how can he be God? That's, that was her reasoning. But, but the thing is, it's not that God is jealous of us. He's jealous for us. And so we have to make that shift in understanding because when we think jealousy, we think something that is built out, out, of, out of fear, that's built out of anxiety. Uh, it's something that comes out of just uh, a, a, a misunderstanding of situations. It's birthed out of insecurity. So jealousy to us is a, essentially a response out, out, of, out of fear and out of worry in a situation, right? That is not God's idea and understanding of jealousy. When we speak of the jealousy of God, it's about his longing force because here's what it said. He says, he, he is, without reason that he jealously longs for the spirit he has caused to dwell in us. He's not jealous about you. He's jealous for you for his own glory. Because see, his jealousy comes from the fact that he put our spirit in us and his glory is at stake and our joy is at stake. So he, he longs for our spirit. He is in pursuit of our spirit. It's as if there was a peasant woman who was living in the lowest of lows in the dirtiest of dirty situations. And the king comes by and his eyes fall on her and he's taken by her, overwhelmed by the beauty that he sees that is masked by the dirt that she's living in. And he picks her up and he brings her in, takes her back to the palace and places his ring on her finger and says, you will be my bride. And then she is cleaned and, and, and made, made new and, and no longer does she have to live in the dirt, in the muck that she was in. And she can be clean and beautiful and the bride of the king. And then she decides to go back. And this king who's so in love with his new queen is now desperately seeking to find her. That's the jealousy of God. He has made a way for us to be clean and rid of the dirt and the muck that covered us. And when we turn back to the world and we find ourselves back in our filth and then he is in desperate pursuit of us he jealously longs for the spirit in us. But he gives more grace. Aren't you thankful that he gives more grace? Romans 5.20 says, the law was brought in so that the trespass might increase, but where sin increased, grace increased all the more. So let's talk about this for a moment. So here we have, we have Moses 
and, and they have just left Egypt and they're out there and Moses goes, I'm going to go up on top of this mountain. I need to go talk to God, right? So he's up there for a while. And while he's up there, the people start to get worried like, oh, this is it. Moses has left us. He's never coming back. What should we do? And then they get this awesome idea. I know, let's make a new God out of gold and it'd be a tiny little calf because what doesn't strike fear in the hearts of your enemies like a calf, I, you know, one of those things. So Moses comes down, right? So here are the people living in this, this crazy depra- depravity in this, this wild scene of, of, of this huge party, just full of sin, right? Just all the sin. So Moses is coming down with the 10 commandments and he begins to read them. And he, first of all, right away, they're worshiping this, this golden calf and right away. He comes down and he says, thou shalt have no other gods before me. And they're all like, whoops. Uh, I told Aaron that this was a bad idea. I said, hey, Aaron, you get that out of here, right? And so all of a sudden there's this understanding of, whoops, I've messed up. And then he goes on like, you shouldn't lie. Oh, shoot. I didn't really say that to Aaron, right? Also, there's this recognition, you know, that don't be angry. I was mad at Aaron for this. Right? Don't covet. So, so there's every time he read another of the, of the law, more of the law, there is this greater understanding of, of our, our sin, right? Of the, so it says where, where, where the, the, the trespass might increase. So there's this understanding that through the law, we recognize, we see, and we understand fully how sinful we are. But where sin increased, grace increased all the more. God gives more grace. There is no sin that is stronger than the grace of God. So here, here's grace wins in the end, right? Grace overcomes, it triumphs over sin. And it's not even close. It's not even close. That's the best part about it. If you think of it in terms of a race, grace finishes the, the line, crosses the finish line, goes and, and, and drinks some Gatorade, has a, it takes a shower, gets dressed, has a bite to eat, and then goes and sits and waits for sin to cross the finish line, right? It's not even close because grace wins, right? So it is this, this victorious and this triumphant, victorious scene where, where, where grace has overcome and defeated sin because sin cannot defeat grace. So how do we receive that grace? What should our response be? Verse seven, submit yourselves then to God. Resist the devil and he will flee from you. Come near to God and he will come near to you. Wash your hands, you sinners, and purify your hearts, you double-minded. Grieve, mourn, and wail. Change your laughter to mourning and your joy to gloom. Humble yourselves before the Lord and he will lift you up. So what do we do? How do we step into this grace that he just wants to give and give and give? We submit. We submit. We surrender to God. We allow God to take from us the sin that so easily entangles and we get to hand it over to him. For some, the hardest thing for them to do is to fully lay down sin. And I'm not talking about forgiveness and just forgiveness. I'm talking about repentance of sin, which means to turn from, right? It's not just this, oh God, forgive me as I decide to continue to walk in. No, no, no. That's not what we're talking about. This is that submission where we say, okay, God, I am fully submitted and surrendered to you. I lay it all down at your feet and I submit to you. When we submit to God, we gain what is far greater than what we gave up. 
I know for some people, the hard thing is to say, okay, I want to submit to God, but what am I going to lose? What do I lose? And you go, what do you mean? What do you lose? And I go, well, I, 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 I like these things. I do these things and, and, and I know I shouldn't. They're not good. And, and, but, but, but I know I need, I need the Lord. And, and so I don't know what I'm going to lose. And here's the reality. Yes, you may have to lose some things, but any loving father knows that they cannot allow their children to just do whatever they want all the time unless they want that child to grow crooked, right? A loving father helps shape and correct and direct a child so that they can grow to be the man or woman of God that they have been called to be. So if God takes from you, it's out of a loving father, out of the the mind of a loving father, out of the heart of a loving father, not out of a cruel father. He's not taking from you so that, that you can be miserable. No, he's taking from you so you can find true joy. And not just, not just temporary, short-lived, not lasting joy. So how do we submit? There's, James gives us three things. First, first thing he says is this, resist the devil and he will flee from you. So what is, the devil's, what is the devil responsible for? What am I for? Because we know through scripture that the devil made me do it. That doesn't fly, right? Uh, uh, I may have shared this story before. My little sister, when she was about five years old, she, my mom went to go pick her up from a friend's house. And then she goes up, she gets her, and they get in, in, in our minivan. And my little sister then begins to tell my mom immediately, mom, the devil made me do it. And my mom's like unaware of what she's even mean, she's talking about. She's like, the devil made me do it. He made me do it. She's like, my mom's going, well, that's not how it works. But okay, what, what did the devil make you do, Rachel? She made me hit Brittany. Like, or he made me hit Brittany. You know, so she comes into this whole like confession thing, but trying to blame it on the devil, right? It's like, I want to tell you what I did wrong, but, but it wasn't my fault. The devil did it. It just threw me, right? My mom's like, oh, okay. So it was like this whole like moment of like the devil possessed you fully and took over your body and you were like, Bleh. and then he left, right? And so she, she's like, I mean, maybe it wasn't quite like that, right? So my mom having to explain to my five-year-old little sister, like, no, Rachel, that's not how this works. The devil did not make you hit Brittany, right? So, so we know through scripture that doesn't work. So what, what, is the, what does he do? So Paul writes to us in 1 Corinthians 10, 13, no temptation has overtaken you except what is common to mankind. And God is faithful. He will not let you be tempted beyond what you can bear. But when you are tempted, he will also provide a way out so that you can endure it. This text is in fact encouraging, right? Uh, you know, James is coming in hard and then we get to the grace and it makes things a little bit, we're like, oh, thank God for grace. But this text is, is so encouraging to us because it tells us a couple of things. One is this, that we are all tempted, right? And there's nothing that is, that is uncommon to us that is gonna, be, that is gonna tempt us, right? It's, it's not like we're the only ones being tempted by this or the only ones being drawn by this, right? And so there is nothing that, that is tempting us. So the role of the enemy, the role of the devil is the tempter, right? But we have a choice. But here's the greatest thing is this. It says that, and God is faithful. That's the other thing. One, we know that we're not alone in this, that others are tempted, that others have walked down this this, this same road, the same path. And two, we know that God is faithful. And he won't allow us to be tempted beyond what we can handle. So, so what that means is that when we start to get close to our limit and we go, okay, God, this is more than I can bear with. This is more than I can do. He then in turn provides a way out. He goes, okay, I'm gonna give you a way out every single time, whether that's through a mental choice or decision or that's through somebody showing up or whatever it may be. God says, I'm not gonna allow you to stand to be tempted on your own. So when we resist the devil, right? 
That's that way out. This is wartime language that James is using. He says, resist, resist. That means stand your ground, stand firm, draw your sword, get ready to fight. Don't turn and just hope that it's not that, but you're like, like, no, 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 that's not what this is. This is, I'm gonna turn, I'm gonna punch you in the mouth. I'm gonna drive a sword through you if I have to. I am going to resist. I'm gonna fight back. God provides the way out. He says, resist the devil. And then what happens when you resist? The devil is weak. When you resist, he turns and flees. He turns and runs. So he's saying, submit to God, resist the devil. Don't allow him to push you around. Don't allow him to push. You turn and you push back. You say, no, I'm not doing that. I'm not walking that way any longer. Because here's what happens. As a spirit-empowered, as a spirit-filled believer, you have the power and the authority to overcome and to resist. Will we stumble and fall? Do we have to? No. Because we're filled with the spirit. We are empowered by the spirit of God to overcome the enemy, to overcome sin, to overcome temptation. The second thing he tells us to do is to come near to God and he will come near to us. First thing is this, don't miss that promise. There's a promise there that if we draw near to the Lord, if we come near to God, he in turn will also come near to us. So it says this, if we try to draw near to the Lord, every step we take counts as more than one. Every step we take counts as two, right? We take a step, he takes a step. We take a step, he takes a step. So understand that promise that when you pursue the Lord, he in turn is drawing near to you as well. When you say, God, I wanna be closer, I wanna be closer. He goes, oh, so good, because I wanna be closer. I want to be closer. I want to be closer. So what do we do? And, and I mentioned this earlier, and I don't need to rehash this whole thing, but we need to read the word of God. It's the greatest place to start in pursuit of the Lord is to read the word of God. And like I said, we don't read the Bible like a newspaper. We read the Bible to let it read us. We read the word of God so that we can see the beauty and the love of God, and we allow that to transform us. Through the word of God, we gaze upon his beauty. And again, we walk in community. In a couple of weeks, so September 8th, we are having our life group fair. September 15th is the first weekend of this semester of our life groups. And we kind of launch and we kick off then. Find a connection group. I keep saying life groups, that's old hat. And I apologize, that's a past vocabulary that I am working out of me. So just roll with it. But we have our connection group fair on September 8th. Find a group, get plugged in, get connected to other believers who are walking this with you. Be faithful to church. I heard it said this way one time, no one can have God as their father who doesn't have the church as their mother. In that need for one another, right? We need each other to grow. We need each other to, to build each other up and then also pursuing those who have been there longer that we can lean on and find as mentors in our lives to, to glean from and to draw from. The third thing is this, we're serious about sin. James says, wash your hands, you sinners, and purify your hearts, you double-minded. What is he saying? First of all, get rid of, wash your hands. Get rid of what is visible. Get rid of the sin that people just see, right? The blatantly obvious stuff. Wash yourself of that. Purify your hands, clean your hands. And then he says, he says, he says watch your mind and your heart, right? He says, be, cleanse yourself of, 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 in your hearts of your, of your desires, purify your desires, and then cleanse your, your mind, you double-minded. 
He's saying you're trying to be on both sides mentally and you have this war waging against yourself in your mind. Here's what he's saying. Take captive every thought and every desire of your heart. Question your motives in all things. Don't just deal uh, with, with what people can see, but deal with what's going on in your mind and in your heart. We have to be serious about saying, here's what I've learned, here's what I know. If we let our minds and our hearts run wild, eventually our actions will catch up. And James is saying, this should not be. We need to be serious about sin. As believers, as followers of Christ, we need to purify ourselves. Our our desire shouldn't be to just make it in. Our, Our hope is not to just use grace continuously always, right? We are covered in grace. We then have the spirit in us to live outside of sin. And we need to be serious about the pursuit of righteousness. This is what James is pushing here. This is what he's saying. He said, we can't just hope to be Christian in name only, which I believe doesn't even exist because either you are or you aren't. And that's just, we'll go down that road another day, I'm sure. But being, being righteous in the way we live in pursuit of the Lord always. And then the last portion of this, Verse nine and 10, grieve, mourn, and wail. Change your laughter to mourning and your joy to gloom. Humble yourselves before the Lord and he will lift you up. In our humility, we're lifted. These verses go against everything that American culture and ideals say we should strive for, right? It's, this is, we don't like to grieve. We hate it when we have to walk through a season of grieving. We want to laugh. We want joy. Uh, The idea of humbly submitting to someone means that we have to lessen ourselves. James is talking about just repentance here. This isn't a matter of, like I said, you know, God's desire is for us to grow in our joy and not to to suppress it. But what he's saying is don't be excited about the sin and, and all of the guilt that you carry. Grieve over those things. Grieve over those things. There are our, there are groups of, of monks and stuff that, that would pray for and ask for tears over their sin. They would say, God, give us tears for our transgressions. Let us be so broken by our sin. Let us be so broken by, by, by our transgressions and our iniquities. Let us, let us feel it. Let us know the weight of it. And pray, you know, they would pray for their tears, right? Which is that Humility. Say, God, let me come under you. Let me place myself beneath you as I humbly submit to you. And he says, and then God will lift you up. Jesus will lift you up. You have to understand that God is fully for God. And out of that, he jealously longs for the spirit within us. And as we submit, he gives more grace. I'll invite the worship team. good news for us. James doesn't, like I said, he doesn't pull any punches. James goes straight for it. He, he, he says it like it is. He calls it out and he runs straight into it and says, listen, this ought not be, right? This isn't the way we should live. This isn't how we should be perceived. This isn't how we should be looked at from the outside. This isn't, shouldn't be happening within the church. And, and he's saying, listen, let's purify our hearts. Let's realign our hearts to recognize and understand that, that God's focus and objective is for his name to be glorified and for it to be glorified through us. That's why he jealously longs for the spirit in us.
So I guess if we look at it, it James first says, what's the problem? And he talks about the quarreling and, and the issues from within. And then he says, and then what are you doing? And he talks about their response and, and how they've turned their backs on God. And then and he goes through this whole deal. And you know, and we, he just says, man, you, you adulterous people, right? And he goes through and he lays down and lays out the sin that has taken place. He says, this, this isn't good. And then he reveals the response of God to us. He jealously longs for us and he gives more grace. I know sometimes people want to get on James for being too strong or too harsh, but I don't, I think that that right there just sums up the heart of God for us and reveals his compassion, his love for us. The fact that we would take our friendship and just remove it from him and turn to the most hostile people towards him. And then he says, but I still pursue you, jealously pursue you. love of God, the love of God. This morning with every head bowed and every eye closed, I want to pray over you. And I want to ask that the spirit of God begins to speak to your heart and that it begins to speak to your mind. And that maybe there's things that, that have begun to move away from understanding the blessings we've been given and be understanding what has been poured out and, and, and maybe we need to come back to the alignment of, of saying, okay, God, what do I do for your name to be glorified? How do I recognize the blessing you've given me? How do I learn to walk in, in, in joy for others? And then maybe you're in a place where you go, you know what, I've turned my back on God. I've, I've, I've pursued other things And I find myself miserable. I find myself frustrated. I find myself not gaining what I was hoping to gain. And I need to step back and walk in that grace that he's giving. Father, we love you. God, I know that our words only mean so much because our words carry so many different different levels and depths of, of understanding and in our words can only speak so much to the matter of our heart and where we are but Lord hear us when we say we love you and we thank you for your grace and we thank you for your love God that as a loving father you reveal to us our transgressions so that we can then in turn say oh God forgive us and then you pour out grace without question you pour it out so God this morning if there's anyone here who would say at any point God, through the word this morning that, that you begin to stir things in my heart you begin to challenge me you begin to, to allow the word to, to, to read me God, I pray for all of those here that, that, that are walking through this. God, that, that you begin to just let them feel your grace and your mercy. God, that as they pursue it, Lord, as they submit to you, as they surrender fully to who you are, that you, in turn, begin to fill them with your grace. Let them know it. Let them feel it, God, as, as you lovingly embrace them.
Thank you for listening to this week's podcast. Grace Hill is always about knowing God and growing in God, and we want to hear from you. If you have a prayer request or a question, you can email us at info at gracehill.cc.